Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. It is time for another podcast. Yes. And we continue to talk about beauty this week. Because you can never, ever stop talking about beauty. And you know it's three total, actually. So this is number two. two, And you know what's really beautiful? Uh, You? Well, obviously. But our two new Patreon supporters. Woohoo! So we have two new supporters, Stephen Eros and Mark Laudonio. You you remember Mark, right? Of course, from Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, Mark worked at the Cathedral Parish where we used to do some of our recording, and he invited us out to do Liturgy Guys on Tap in Madison, Mm -hmm. which was a really great event. So So thank you, Mark, Mark, and thanks, Stephen. And if you want to support us on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash liturgy. And without further ado, episode four of season four of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, guys, we're back again. And Dennis, you had uh, told me that you were unsatisfied with the depth that we got into with the beauty episode. So you have more beauty for us. I don't like putting it that way, Jesse. More? You don't don't say I'm unsatisfied. There's just more satisfaction to be had. It was kind of a homely beauty podcast. (laughs) Wait, I don't know what that means. (laughs) But the most important thing is I now have a, a new Twitter handle. You know that, right? Is it D Benedict Benedict D? What? No, it's <laughs> D Max Super Taster. Oh, yeah! All the other D Max were taken, so I had to go D Max Super Taster. So, uh, yeah, you can find me there. I haven't well, tweeted anything yet, but it's there. Do you think the liturgy guys should follow you? I think so, or I should follow the liturgy guys, or something like oh, that. Oh, let's yeah, let's yeah. let's do that. Uh, but anyway, uh, last last time we were talking about beauty last week. Yes, we what do you off. remember about that, Jesse like, or Chris? Anything? It was so memorable that I cannot even think of one specific thing that you said. It I was know, just, just like having a, a Ferris Bueller moment here. Anyone? No, it was anything, it was anything? Uh, it was just a basic introduction into this idea of objective beauty, which it was you, not basic. It was profound. Uh, Jesse, don't deep. you have to like edit and re-listen oh to these things like ten times? If it was so profound, why do we need to keep talking about it? <laughs> it, it was a profound introduction. All right, All right. I'll tell you since Dave, Dave who seemed to have the capacity hey, of, a, of a fly. By the way. That's a good band name, Profound Introduction. Yeah, well, better be. <laughs> Maybe it's a good opener anyway. Here's the big thing from last time, right? All beauty, right. we call a thing beautiful when you experience a revelation of its ontological reality. Remember, ontology is the nature of things, the being, when its being is presented to you. How could I forget ontology? Uh, how could you? I know, that's my favorite word, and then it became your favorite word by the associative property of favorite mm-hmm. words. So there it is, revelation of the inner essence the logic as understood in the mind of god when that is revealed to you boom you experience beauty so a good example is a little kid who just does something so genuine you know when they walk up to you and just out of the blue say you know dad i love you or they they just do something so nice for their sibling or they make you a little card it's just this pure revelation of who they are and their goodness and we we would go oh that's so cute and dennis cry yes your godson lars we were uh uh, this uh, we were meeting with a, with a priest who was a little I, this person was a little overweight and Lars says out loud 
He's fat. Yeah. See, but you know, how come... I don't remember being there. (laughs) Yo, you weren't there. So is that beautiful? Well, yeah. It was awful. It's it's genuine. Absolutely genuine. Little kids can get away with all kinds of stuff of truth-telling that nobody else can because there's no... There's no guile in them, right? They're, they're just revealing who they are. Now, sometimes they have to learn how to control that. But if, uh, you know, if God shows up and says, boom, here I am, and he reveals himself to you, there's nothing you can do but just fall over dead and be like, all right, God, I want to be with you forever, right? This is total transformative moment. So you take one little bit of God's reality as he's expressed himself to us, whether it's nature or an artwork or music or a poem, and you just say, okay, I've encountered something of the depth of the, re- of the reality of existence. And when that happens, we're moved and we have this experience and we know the truth more fully. And that's the key thing because beauty and truth are related because you can have an emotional response to something. Um, but if that something isn't true, then you're being attracted to something deceitful. So the idea is truth when it's prevent- presented to you in this delightful, attractive, compelling, revelatory way. That is what we call beauty. And there are often emotional responses that come with that, right? And that's good. But at the bottom of it, to know if something is actually beautiful, you have to know if it's true. Because beauty is related to revelation. When a thing's inner reality, as understood in the mind of God, is revealed, then your mind delights in it, but also your soul delights in it. And that's the brought to tears moment that people have when they experience something beauty. Um, I've experienced that listening to these podcasts, to be honest. Uh, of course you have, as you should. Because Chris is so good at revealing his inner reality. So uh, you see his beauty all the time. You should like, Chris, what he's time not, and date was this document released? And he's just like, boom, there it is. And he knows He's it. not so good at revealing his outer beauty, though. Well, that's true. It's the beard hides it all. Do you still have a beard, Chris? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So... Beauty, most people think, as I look at something and I have an emotional response, and that's beautiful, and therefore it's my subjective response to it. But no, 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 no. They have an emotional response because they've actually encountered the deepest aspect of a thing's existence. And then the mind and the soul are pleased. And that's when this um, beautiful experience happens. So it can't be unhinged from the truth. Beauty is known in the mind. Uh, you remember in uh, the Confessions when St. Augustine, he hears these little kids singing. He's in some garden or something, and it says, take up and read and take up and read. And he opens the, the scriptures, and I don't remember what passage he read, but it's he describes, uh, um, you know, just, just reading this through the tears flowing through his eyes, this truth about God, and really this truth about himself, too. This what a <laughs> this be another one of those examples about uh, well yeah exactly if your if your mind and your heart and your soul are sort of crying out for understanding what is true and like your whole life you're trying to figure out why do I feel this way how come my life doesn't make sense and then something of the truth comes to you that makes the inner essence of you make sense then you understand your own beauty and it becomes it comes from God ultimately so you have to understand uh, what God is through some encounter that reveals the fullness of that reality. And it doesn't happen through air, right? It happens through things, people, artworks, nature. There's a, this is what's called the realist approach that the beauty is actually in the object. It's known in the mind, of course, but it comes first in, by being encountered through something. And it has to so exist. Beauty is in the object of the beholder? Well, it, there's, a, there's a relationship <laughs> between the object and the mind, right? So uh, beauty is associated with being. Let's hang on to that, right? If you're going to say, 
I have a blue car, but I don't have a car, right? How can it be blue if it doesn't exist, right? The blueness comes along with the existence of the car. And so beauty is an attribute and a quality of existence. Either you exist in a sort of lame way or you exist in this full way that reveals the mind of God. And so being and beauty are related. You can't be beautiful if you don't exist. Um, But the more perfection you have in your being, the more beautiful the thing is. I don't know. If, I, I think we've talked about this before. I don't know if it's the last podcast, though. You're familiar with this uh, piece of music, this composition by John Cage called Four Minutes 33 Seconds. Oh, yeah. Seconds. We talked about that in season, oh, yeah. season two, I think. Yeah. yeah. What do you remember about it? Uh, nothing. It's not, it, there's nothing to it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You can look this up on YouTube if you want. And so for four minutes and 33 seconds, you know, the, the musicians come out, the conductor comes out, uh, the symphony hall is all filled. And for four minutes and 33 seconds, there is absolutely no sound except for like, you know, the occasional cough from uh, the balcony or the uh, unwrapping of. Yeah, exactly. The unwrapping of the mm -hmm, four minutes and 33 seconds. So is I don't know what what is behind this type of composition. Maybe you do, Dennis. I do. Uh, But it's uh, certainly that cannot be beautiful, according to this uh, realist approach, because there's nothing in it. Can it? But it's just a very low degree of beauty. So in this understanding of things, beauty is an attribute of being. So if there's any being, if there's any existence at all, there is some beauty there because there's a revelation of something. So, but at the end of the day, you have to ask the question, well, how important is it to understand the ontological reality of cough and candy wrapper? It's, it's something. I mean, God made people to cough so they can clear out their lungs, right? That's an attribute of God's reality. However, Boy, that was a really weird point that you just made. Well, I appreciate that, Jesse. (laughs) It's just a small, small uh, revelation of ontology. And the more being is revealed to us, I mean, like, imagine the big glass and the small glass image, right? You can have a, a shot glass full of milk and it's pretty good. You have a gallon of milk, that's more milk, right? That's more milkness. And so there's more beauty there. But then you you can have a gallon full of whiskey too. Whiskey, right? And then that's even different. Um, (laughs) But then take it up to a super taster. A glass of, you know, a rock versus a plant, right? A plant has more being. It participates more fully in being because it can flower and it can grow and it can even turn toward the sun so it can move and it can reproduce by making seeds. All things that a rock can't do. So a rock and a plant both are beautiful because they both exist, but one is a bigger glass, and so it has more participation in uh, beauty. And so this is, a, this is a really important thing about this realist approach to beauty, that there are fuller capacities. Things have a fuller or lesser capacity to reveal the mind of God who's being itself, right? Or, or God who is existence itself. And so I like to compare it to the test sheet that comes out of a printer when you turn it on, you know, and it has like the gradation of gray to mid dark gray to black, and it shows you the range. That's a participation sort of metaphysic in a sense that you can have gray and you can have black. They're both the same color, but one's a fullness of black and one is just a little participation in it. Um, so there, truly speaking, there's no such thing as an ugly thing if it exists. The only ugliness is to not exist at all. But things are more beautiful than others when they have a greater participation in the fullness of being, if that makes sense to you. I hope it does. It makes sense to me now. I mean, now I know that a rock is not as awesome as a plant, and a plant is not as awesome as a human being, and a human being is just a little more awesome than Chris. (laughs) (laughs) And human beings are slightly less than the angels, right? What is, what's that line from scripture? You made them a little less yeah, than Yeah, but the gods. angels are jealous of us. Well, they have, they don't have existence, corporeal existence. So we have mm-hmm. something they don't have. They're, you know, the, 
the fallen angels are fallen, of course, but they still kept their powers of intellect and so on. So like Satan has beauty still. It's just a beauty that's messed up. And so he has the capacity to know and to perceive and move and, you know, all the things that angels can do. It's just they're not used in the right end. So there's a, there is a beauty there, but it's, it's uh, out of whack. And that's one of the things about fallen creation is there still is existence. It's just that it's not always ordered to the right end. So, so how do we how do we organize these thoughts into different categories of art or different things that are beautiful? Because that's where I think it gets hard for people to understand this because you have different styles of beauty mm-hmm. and does is this unilateral across all of those styles too? Well, beauty isn't always a perfection. We say, oh, that's beautiful. Then we think, oh, okay, I'm, I'm universalizing that up to the highest level. Think of beauty more like a solution of a chemical in water, right? You can have a 5% solution, a 10%, 50%, or 100%. And so you say, well, is 5% hydrochloric acid more beautiful than 100% hydrochloric acid? Well, not if you need it to be 5%. So this is where the intellect comes in. So beauty is not really an object of the emotions. So I see something, oh, that's beautiful, and ultimately beautiful. No, your mind says, okay, well, that rock has beauty, right? It exists. It does what God wants it to do. But it can't do what a plant can do or a fish or a deer or a person. And then a person who is more transformed by grace, that is more conformed to God, is actually has a greater participation in being. Because when God gives you his divine life, that actually increases your participation in being. So a person who is holy, a saint, is objectively more beautiful than a sinner. However, a sinner is still pretty darn good, too. So we're not talking about either or. It's not black or white, ugly or beautiful. It's much more along the lines of gradations of participation in being. If it exists, it participates in beauty. The only way to not be beautiful or have some beauty is to go out of existence. Okay. That makes a little more sense to me now. I, and, I, and it has like that hier- hierarchical feel to it as well. Of course, yeah, because human beings, you know, there's this um, chart I found in a theology, a philosophy book years ago, and it was called The Powers of Man. And it goes, at the bottom is a category called vegetative powers. In the middle is something called animal, animal powers. And at the top is rational powers. So the vegetative powers are nutrition and growth and so on. The animal powers are ap- appetites, um, hope, courage, fear, despair, love, whatever. The knowing powers, this is all out of Thomas, are things like sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, you know, things that plants don't have. And then above that, you have imagination. Plants don't have that. Uh, but dogs might. Sometimes you see dogs, you know, having a little bad dream and they're chasing a rabbit and they're sleeping. Oh, those videos are so funny. Their legs are chasing. <laughs> um, but then intellect and will are the rational powers. These are the ones that are most like God. So, you know, dogs have intellect and will to some degree, but not to the same proportion that um, human being does. And so the more you participate in all these capacities, the more you have fullness of being, which is why you can say, properly speaking, the higher you fall in this chart, the more you participate in God's very own existence, and therefore the more beautiful you are, sort of objectively. But then within that category, somebody can really mess up their lives. They can do lots of bad stuff, and they're not revealing the highest capacities that humans have. So they're actually diminishing their power to reveal their participation in God's own being. And so um, you don't want to say a person is not beautiful, right? They still exist as human beings. But a person who's in bad shape is objectively, in this system, less beautiful. And this sounds harsh. It's like, oh, I don't want to call a person ugly or less beautiful. But this is, this is a heady kind of thing. It's the mind that knows beauty in this system rather than the, um, the emotions, although the emotions come with it. 
And so this, the subject, that's the person who perceives the beautiful thing, is important, right? Because the perceiver has to perceive the thing or it's not really bringing, uh, it's, it's not being brought to its fulfillment. And you know what the effects of beautiful things are. Joy, superabounding joy. Um, the mind uh, perceives this wonderful, beautiful stuff, and then the body has emotional responses that are great too. But it has to be open to intelligence. What does everybody do to try, you know, what does every um, genocidal maniac try to do? They try to make themselves believable. They say, okay, I'm the hero, I'm the new generation, I'm the supreme leader. If you do what I say, then we'll have a beautiful existence and some kind of utopian future. And if they're not good behind that, then you can't just turn off the intellect. This is one of the problems with fundamentalism generally. Remember Bishop, uh, I mean, uh, Pope Benedict got in trouble when he talked about fundamentalism in relation to certain branches of Islam, and everybody got mad at him. Uh, but you can have fundamentalist Christianity as well. Which you, oh, I'm not going to think. I'm just going to read and act emotionally. That's not really understanding the depth of the thing. So it has to be open to intellectual inquiry, or it it isn't um, properly understood as as beautiful. How would you how would you differentiate ha- having that emotional feeling that is uh, has a foundation of you know an intellectual knowing or having that emotional feeling without that intellectual knowing base like how how would you is it a, is it a different type of joy is it a different type of emotional reaction and you know how would you know that well it might feel the same but feelings are part of these animal powers and so then you have to use the higher powers of your existence as a person's intellect okay I've looked at this image and it seems really good to me. And then I found, oh, there's some sneaky trick there. One of the examples I like to use is you have these mystics throughout the ages, Margaret Mary or Faustina or somebody, and Jesus or Mary appeared to them all the time. And then every so often the devil shows up appearing like the Virgin Mary or Jesus and says, disobey your superior or, you know, tries to command them to sin. And they realize, oh, wait, this can't be Jesus because Jesus would never tell me that, even though the apparition looks like Jesus. And so they, they don't just go with the sense information, they go with the sense information that then gets understood in the mind and they say, okay, this can't be beautiful because it's not true. And they say, if you're not from God, then you know, leave here. If you are from God, then whatever. Um, and then the devil has to flee and then they're all mad that they got caught. Uh, so you can't just say, okay, the senses please me and therefore it must be true uh, because we have lots of problems like that in our fallen intellect where we, we trust the senses for things that aren't good for us. Pornography would be a good example, right? A lot of good sense uh, feeling associated with that. But then the brain has to kick in and say, okay, is this the best thing? Is this the highest power? Is this um, beautiful? Yeah, that's a good example. I think that exactly aims at what I was getting at. Right. It has to be open to intellectual inquiry, which is not the same as I like it, right? Because you might like lots of things that aren't good for you. And in the field of liturgy, this happens all the time. I like this kind of music. I like this kind of architecture. I like this kind of Vespa. And I like Father who goofs around, makes me feel welcome, and so on. We say, okay fine, your feelings are real and we'll acknowledge those. But then the mind has to say, well, is that the nature of the liturgy being revealed uh, or not? And then you really have to kick in with the brain. And this is where a lot of these arguments happen. It's the the feeling people versus the thinking people get in the uh, in the battles. You know, musicians and artists tend to be tend to be feeling people just by definition. And theologians tend to be thinking people. And the T's and the F's uh, go to war all the time. The T's and is that on your uh, what is that that scale of people who what, what EMFT what are you what no, is that thing called the, the, it's called the Myers Briggs personality oh, yeah. inventory right yeah so you the, talk about that a lot <laughs> extroverts introverts whatever it's actually pretty handy you know sometimes people overuse it as if it's you know came down from heaven from God but it's good to know 
If you're an introvert, extroverts will drive you crazy because they have all this energy and they want to go do stuff. And you're like, leave me alone. I have to be alone and think, stop bothering me, right? And extroverts get really bored if there's nobody around and then they, you know, start to get antsy. And just to know, okay, this is important. This is important to know. Well, probably, Jesse, you're probably an extrovert. And I imagine Kim, your lovely wet bride, is is she an introvert? Yeah, but we're, but we're, we're extroverts in different scenarios. Okay. So like in a, in a small group of people, she's, she is an extrovert, you know, like three or four people. Um, and, well, extroverts and, aren't know, the same as being shy or not being shy. It just means there's certain habits. Like you have to go away and think you need time alone to recharge your batteries and so on. Or extroverts oh, okay. recharge their batteries by going out and talking to people and going to a shopping mall. Yeah. yeah. And okay. That stuff. Yeah. We're totally different then. Yes. But then the, th- the thinkers are intellect dominated the feelers are emotion dominated and those that's a really hard one to uh to bridge dennis so you've been saying this stuff for a very long time uh teaching this at uh, mundelein to seminarians to oh i thought Institute. you meant like right now for 20 minutes on this podcast, <laughs> this podcast never gonna end. what's next part three yeah, i um, think we will have a part three actually <laughs> so but i want to know what uh i mean what is a when you explain this to an 18-year-old or 20-year-old or 23-year-old, or I suppose even they don't have to be a young person, um, what kind of response do you get? I mean, do, do people just sort of, uh, now granted, we're, you have a kind of a select group if they're on a seminary campus and they're at Benedictine College, uh, they're, they're probably more open and sympathetic to the things you're saying. But I mean, do you get, are, are heads nodding in agreement? They say, yes, that's just what I've been uh, that's just what I believe yeah. this whole time, and now it's starting to make sense. Or I mean, do you get objections to this? What kind of reaction? Because the the most of the world is telling us just the opposite from what you're saying. So, what? How do people react to this? Yeah, I think the crowds that I run in tend to be looking for this kind of thing. They're like, "Oh yeah, now it makes sense, right?" Because they have an in- intellectual intuition that whatever should be some way just can't hang around in subjective emotional response. Like, for instance, you can't say, well, I feel that the Eucharist is the real presence, body, blood, soul, divinity of Jesus Christ, and therefore it is. And if I don't feel that, then it's not, right? Either it is or it isn't, and that's an intellectual assent. And then, you know, just because people feel it doesn't mean, doesn't change the reality. So this external um, objective reality, I think people who are Catholic kind of get that, that there is something that's true that they've been taught, even though they don't always understand it or, or have a lot of feelings around it. Um, and so when they finally say, okay, beauty is an object of the intellect, oh, okay. And then the feelings may come afterward. They may be secondary and they're still good, but they're secondary. Uh, I think that gives people a, a grounding and an answer to what the world is, is telling them all the time. You know, when you're talking about the Eucharist, uh, I I don't know if you followed any of this, but uh, uh, Bishop Barron had some commentary recently about uh, a percentage of practicing Catholics who uh, believe or don't believe in the real presence. Oh, that was that big study that came out, right? Okay, yeah, I think he must have been commentating on that. Right. And uh, Bishop Barron's uh, take, at least this very little part that I read, was about the uh, how poor catechesis has been over the past decades and not explaining intellectually uh, the truth of the real presence. But then there's been some, mostly kind of from liturgical fields, people saying, but it's not simply about teaching and catechesis. Uh, and then they're riffing on this line from uh, Pope Benedict about the best catechesis on the Eucharist is the Eucharist itself celebrated well. And so yes. you have this, uh, this pair between uh, Lex uh, Credendi, the law of what you believe, and Lex Arande, the law of how you worship. Mm-hmm. And what these people are saying is what is um, lacking, maybe even more than the catechesis, is poor liturgical celebrations. And so you can have all this 
head knowledge, and I know you're saying beauty is intellectual, but it seems uh, what these people are saying is is the the truth of the faith in this instance, the uh, in the real presence, can't simply be catechetical and intellectual. It also needs to be sensory right. and kind of more holistic if the truth of the matter is to get across. I yeah. very much agree with all of that. And so do I. However, the sense experience alone can't determine if something's beautiful, right? The sense experience has to be assessed by the intellect. So... You can go to a mass and it's your style of liturgy, but then you still have to ask the question, is my style of liturgy the norm? Is it conforming to that? Is the truth of the liturgy, the ontological reality of the liturgy being revealed here? So, you know, I think we've all used that phrase once in a while, that joke that somebody goes to see the rabbi and says, the rabbi says to the rabbi, the, the gospel doesn't, I mean, the Bible doesn't say what I believe. And the rabbi says, well, you should believe what it says, right? You have to conform yourself to this reality. So the intellect has to, kick in. However, that doesn't mean that there isn't deep experiential knowledge that comes through sense experience. So when you go to a lovely mass and the ontology of the liturgy is revealed and you have a, a transformative, transcendent, transcendent experience, that still has to be analyzed by the intellect. But it's still a deep source of information and knowledge that comes experientially, which is not to be scoffed at. Yeah, well, this same uh, Bishop Barron too, right? He's into as as much as he uh, debates and engages in uh, intellectual conversation. Uh, he's famous for. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, he talks about *Brideshead Revisited*. Mm -hmm. Remember that uh, novel by Evelyn Waugh? And he talks about how the characters in there they're evangelized and they come to the truth not through the intellect or through moral action, but through beauty the beauty of bride's head, you know, the bride of, uh, who's Christ, the, uh, the head of the bride, which is the church. And so he, uh, Bishop Barron speaks often about uh, evangelization through beauty because people, which, which seems odd because uh, people have their own subjective truth, uh, he says, in this world. So it's hard to engage intellectually or on the level of truth. And they certainly don't want to be told how to act. So the, uh, the moral action is very difficult. But there's something... Uh, about beauty that uh, that still attracts, and so he suggests that evangelization today is maybe more effective through the means of beauty rather than intellectual uh, arguments. Well, yeah, I, that's his whole shtick, right? Well, like, I put a nuance on that, which is when you talk about beauty this way, beauty is that about the truth which is delightful or the splendor of the truth is often the phrase that's used. So it's not unhinged from the truth. It's not like oh, I experienced something beautiful now I'm converted. It's the truth is presented to me in a way that is so beautiful that I find it compelling. So beauty is the compelling power of the truth. I, I like to compare it to deliciousness is the compelling power of food. Right? You could eat some flavorless gruel just to get the vitamins and carbohydrates you need. But what you want is something <laughs> flavorless gruel. There's a band name, flavorless gruel. Yeah. Um, but if it's not delicious, you're not going to be inspired to take it into yourself. And so truth is the same way. If it comes across as grating, as finger pointing, as dangerous, as threatening, as imposing your will on somebody else, then people say that's that's not appealing. You know, if someone says comes up to you with a spoon and says, "Eat this now," and he's like, "No." But if, you know, you come home and... I don't like to be spoon-fed things. Well, so. right. I mean, but if you come home and the house smells delicious and there's something beautiful in the kitchen, you're going to go in the kitchen and eat it because it's delightful. You're still encountering the food. It's just that the deliciousness makes it easy and something that you want to do. The truth is still encountered in beauty, and it has to be. However, when the truth is presented in a way that's delightful, attractive, and compelling, and believable, and authentic, 
that's what we call beauty. And so it's the mind is engaged eventually, and the truth is known, but uh, it comes through this delightful method instead of some other method. Well, I suppose that's the beauty of, uh, of the church's liturgy is it's not just uh, the fullness of the truth in, a, in an intellectual manner, but it's presented to us through each of our senses, through incense and uh, consecrated wine and holy water and the beauty of uh, windows and mosaics and uh, sacred music, that those things uh, are, are acting on all of our senses and our whole bodies to lead us into the truth. Right. A stained glass window is a good example. Someone could tell you, go read a very dry you know, academic paper about St. Whoever. Or you look at a stained glass window and you're learning the life of St. Whoever. Right? It's the same encounter with the same information, but one is kind of fascinating and delightful. Another one might be work. You know? And so one of the things about beauty is that we know without much effort. If you've ever watched a movie that was delightful, and I saw the Downton Abbey movie last night, by the way, um, <laughs> it wasn't as delightful as I hoped, but it was. Oh, good. I was I was really excited to ask you about that. But yeah, maybe yeah. we'll have to go offline for that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but even Downton Abbey, right? Why do people watch? Okay, the stories are compelling. Well, what's compelling about them? Because they're speaking about the truth of the human condition. Beautiful, and there's also beautiful cars and clothes and architecture and people and so on. So there's something just delightful about all of that, and then we find out what's the truth. Uh, behind it, but that doesn't unhinge it from the truth, really, ever. And so uh, that's just the key thing about beauty is that it's not a thing in itself. It's a quality of being. And when we experience something beauty, beautiful, we understand the depth of its inner reality without labor. This is what Jacques Maritain says, that we're excused our customary task. And so what's the customary task? Trying to figure out what it is that I'm looking at, right? So if a church doesn't look like a church and you drive up to the parking lot, you're going to some wedding or something, and it looks like a warehouse or whatever, and there's a sign on it that says such and such Catholic church, what does your brain do? Like what actually goes on in your brain? Well, it, we have to process what we're thinking, and then so we, we know something, and then our emotions uh, react to whatever we see or read. Well, right. So, well, I take it even more, more explicit. Say there's a McDonald's, a building that looks like a McDonald's, right? The slope. Yeah, move. every time my son sees it, he says, I eat chicken nuggets, french fries. <laughs> right. So he's associated this building with chicken nuggets, french fries. So then you get an address for the wedding, and the GPS takes you to a building that looks like McDonald's. What does your brain do? Your brain says, what? It salivates. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but your brain says, is this really the church? <laughs> this looks like McDonald's. I'm, there's a mismatch between what my mind understands, what the invitation says, and what this building is revealing to me. Now, if it looks like a church, if it reveals churchness to you, then you don't do that. You're just like, oh, yeah, there's a church, right? You just know immediately and without labor. And how come we don't know things easily? Why do we have to labor to know things, Chris? Because things are ugly. Well, because we're because we're fallen, because we're fallen. Right. And things are ugly because nailed we're fallen. it. Chris, you're um, stupid. I'm smart. So if you experience something beautiful, you don't say, hmm, what is that? Is that a car, a cow, a, a cookie, whatever? You're just like, whoa, chocolate chip cookie. Right. And you get this access to it. And so what Jacques Maritain, who's this early 20th century philosopher of beauty, among other things, I uh, said, in beautiful things, the mind is spared the least effort of abstraction. Abstraction means looking at all the examples and trying to figure out the essential uh, qualities. And it rejoices without labor. In other words, the reality of the object, which is how the mind of God perceives it, is so clearly and completely and properly evident that we don't even have to ask what it is. We almost have direct access to the inner reality of the thing, which normally we only have when and where. 
heaven in heaven do after you, our do, death do you remember this uh, line from the the constitution about ritus nobilis simplicitate fulgiant I only about read the, the Constitution in English. <laughs> I look at the, the Constitution. Usually I think of like American Constitution when you the, say that. The rights uh, uh, radiate and they communicate in a flash right. their content. Right. And that's what the liturgy should be like. Like, like Mertain is saying, it, it should be able to communicate without having to labor about what is that song about? Mm-hmm. What does that church mean? What is that homily about? What is my neighbor doing? All of these things are radiating in a flash the glory of God. Right. And when that happens, that means for a moment, you are actually relieved from the effects of the fall. Because with the fall, we don't know and perceive immediately with direct access to the mind of God and the fullness of understanding. But for a moment, something happens and we feel like, whoa, I've, I've encountered something fully. It's actually a, a real anticipation in, on earth, in time, of what the direct communication of the mind of God would be, or at least some greater participation in that reality. And that's amazing. You know, if you have an intellectual under, you know, uh, what do you call it, highlighter in your brain, you know, highlight that. When you encounter a beautiful thing, and the more beautiful it is, the more this is real, the more you are experiencing what it's like to be relieved from the effects of the fall. And therefore, the body and the mind are both like, Whoa, this is awesome, right? So I like to tell people it's like you're at the dentist and they put that lead shield over you to take x-rays. Imagine you have to walk around with 100 pounds of lead on you all the time and then somebody takes it off and you're like, whoa. If the Crusaders did that, Dennis. (laughs) Yes, well, I feel so light, right? I'm not carrying Mm -hmm. this around anymore. Intellectually, that's what your brain feels when they encounter something beautiful. And then you're like, whoa, I have this freedom from the, the, the weight of the inability to understand because this thing has just communicated its inner essence as God understands it to me in real time. And so for the artists, this is pretty high demand on them, right? Because they have to know the mind of God. What is a thing in its full understanding and existence as God understands it? And then they have to be able to make it, right? And you have to be able to compose a song that reveals the mind of God. You have to make a sculpture that reveals the understanding as in the mind of God or a painting or a mosaic. That's a huge, 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 huge responsibility. And to just say, well, I'm going to paint with my feet because nobody's ever painted their feet before and put some squiggles on the wall. Well, all right, there's some existence there, right? There's canvas and paint and some human intellect and capacity. But it's, it's a really small glass. It's a really low-end participation in the reality of things. And most people are going to say, huh, so what? The higher and higher you get, the more direct access you get to the fascinating fullness of the mind of God, the more properly speaking we're calling it uh, beautiful. And so that's the really important thing. The transformative moment happens in the encounter with the reality of God, who is Christ near us. That's what Pope Benedict says. And Christ near us can be a person. It can be the Eucharist. It can be art. It can be whatever. However Christ and God are known and encounter with us, then we have this transformative moment. All right, Chris, did you want to add anything to that? Because I don't. Nope. I think it's good. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) I think it's good as is. I think we have a part three coming. Yeah, well, we'll find out next week when we <laughs> publish another podcast. So uh, let's answer a liturgy question. How do you, what do you guys think about that? No, uh, yes. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris always reveals the inner essence of it, these answers to these questions because he's so beautiful at answering these beautifully. So I and say he does, yes. And if he doesn't, then we'll have a foretaste of flavorless gruel. So. Exactly. Which is still existence, yeah. right? Gruel is yeah, still just, existing, but it's just not delightful. Right. Good thing you're delightful, Chris. Thanks, Dennis. <laughs> right. uh, you too, Jesse. Don't be jealous. Oh, great. Thank you for that uh, 
little side toss you gave to me. To the Liturgical Institute. Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right. Okay, this week we have a question from Father Stephen, and um, it's a little bit of a long question, but I think it's important to get all of the uh, nuances to this question. So uh, Father Stephen says, Hello, I am the pastor of a parish and am considering tabernacle placement. My church was constructed with a reservation chapel and no tabernacle in the sanctuary. The chapel is a tower with a gate and a short hallway separating it from the main sanctuary. The distance from the alternate to the tabernacle is easily 150 feet, making for a for quite a trek during Mass, both to retrieve and reserve the Blessed Sacrament for Holy Communion. This kind of sounds like one of those uh, math problems. If you leave the tabernacle at home, 5 a.m. Yeah, yeah, homeschool math problem. <laughs> if Father leaves the sanctuary. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So he says, at the same time, the nave of the church is so cold and empty without a tabernacle. I am considering moving the tabernacle to a central location in the sanctuary behind the altar while setting up a second altar and tabernacle in the reservation chapel for more intimate prayer. My question is, can there be only one tabernacle or can I have two? What is that? Somebody's drilling something upstairs or outside. I don't I don't know what that's about. All right. Do we just go? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, all right. Uh, I would say the first thing is uh, a lot of the, the code and the germ will uh, have the bishop make local legislation, so Father should check with him. Uh, but also, the code, at least, at number 938, number one, says, The Most Holy Eucharist is to be reserved habitually in only one tabernacle of a church or oratory. So we'll see if that applies here. What do you think, Dennis? Well, the general instruction in the Roman Missal, number 314, chapter 5. Ooh, competing says, quotes. The one tabernacle should be immovable, etc. So there is this very strong suggestion that should be one tabernacle in a church or a chapel and not multiple. And, and the big picture here has to do with this funny historical situation that grew up where there were so many priests and so many altars and you see three or four or five or seven altars in a sanctuary in a church. We're probably used to our Mary altar on one side and Joseph on the other and the high altar in the center. That's already three altars. And so the liturgical movement folks were trying to say, okay, well, what is the essential nature of an altar? And then they would say, it's Christ standing amidst his people. It's the one true place of sacrifice. Well, then why are there three of them in the same room? You know, so this idea of letting the sign value of what the thing is be primary. And so that's the basic logic of the thing, right? You don't have five tabernacles because they would never reserve it in five different places. Even in a church that had five altars with tabernacles, only one of them would be used for, for reservation. And so this kind of cleaning house idea was coming up. There should be one of each thing if there's only one of them in the spiritual order that that thing signifies. Unless, now, you're, unless you're present at the transfiguration, then you would have to build a tabernacle for the two prophets and Jesus, right? 
Well, that would be the, the, the three things signified. <laughs> right. So this kind of simplifying, clarifying, making the one thing look like one thing, that was kind of a, I don't know, that was a priority of many of the liturgical movement thinkers. Now, of course, sometimes the law can become so crazy and ridiculous that people are like, there may only be one tabernacle for the next 50 miles in any direction. You know, it's kind of, <laughs> kind of silly, right? <laughs> and so... In the time after the first uh, missile, English missile, came out after Vatican II, there was a privileging of keeping altars in separate chapels. That was the first option. And then people, just like Father said, started to feel like their church was cold. So what do we do in this situation, Chris? You're becoming a liberal in your old age. <sighs> and uh, I think the principle is what matters, and the law is applied according to the principle. So if their chapel is 150 feet away, it's probably a different room. Like it's a different. And separated by a hallway. Right. It's a different church or oratory. So what you don't want is two tabernacles right next to each other in the same sanctuary, right? But if this is really two distinctive rooms and you're really going to use one for private adoration and one for mass and they're never going to be seen by the same people at the same time in the same room, my interpretation would be it's okay to have a tabernacle in both places. However, if the church is now going to become the primary place of adoration and the other chapel is just going to be empty, then it would probably make sense to remove that one and keep the one in the church. Yeah, I think the, the best situation uh, ideally would make uh, the church the place for private prayer, make it warm. He said it's kind of cold and empty. I think maybe it's John Paul II called the tabernacle the beating heart of the church. I mean, if, if you could make that the lone place for both private prayer, adoration, and mass, that's probably the best solution, but that might not be possible. Not that you guys asked me, but I think it seems plausible if it's in a side chapel that it's kind of a different place. So Yeah, a separate room. Dennis, is, is somebody building, room. moving a tabernacle in your I office? I think someone upstairs is doing construction. I don't know what it is, but... Uh, All right. Shaking Things the are building around me. Yeah, I know. Forward, it's always good. forward. That's our motto here. Forward, always forward. So... <laughs> Building, always building. <laughs> All right. Well, Father Stephen, I hope that answers your question. And if you but want to Father ask, Stephen, hang on. Oh, check with your worship office or yeah, your director of liturgy and see it, what they tell you. You can tell them what we said, but ultimately your Good local luck. bishop person has the uh, has the authority in that situation. <laughs> and the guy upstairs <laughs> agrees with me. All right. And well, just you, been to Taco Bell. Yeah, Father Stephen, you know the drill, and so does Dennis. Uh, well, well, boy, do I know this drill. <laughs> All right. If you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com, or you can tweet Dennis at his new Twitter handle, which is... DMAC Super Taster. No spaces. DMAC Super Taster. No spaces. No spaces. All right. Drill. But don't write out no spaces. Just DMAC Super Taster. <laughs> DMAC underscore spelling out underscore. No. DMAC no underscore. No spelling out no underscore. All right. Thank you and God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoramus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.